Hey, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me, and where we'll find ourselves again today in our our passage, Galatians 3, 1 through 9. Uh, As we do so, I was thinking about field trips this week because my daughter, Jillian, got to go on her very first field trip. She's in kindergarten, and I got to go along with her, got to play chaperone for the day as we went to the fire station and to the pumpkin patch, and it was just a really wonderful time. I know this has been a rainy week, but Monday, if you can remember back that far, was a perfect day for pumpkin patches. Beautiful sun, wonderful, and it caused me to think about field trips in my childhood. I really loved field trips, and I had the privilege of being in a military family, which took us to Germany in a big part of my childhood, and we just got to do some really great field trips in Germany. I got to go to castles, got to go to winter festivals, got to go see ancient Roman ruins, really cool stuff. And then we moved to Olympia. <laughs> and my field trips consisted of going to the wastewater treatment facility, <laughs> the Thurston County landfill, and, oh yes, the highlight was water quality testing at Mud Creek, which name fit it very... I won't, I won't make you... I won't tell you which one I preferred, Olympia versus Germany, but, you know, field trips, they're wonderful. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because today's text is going to be a little different. I'm going to take us on a a couple field trips today. So we come to Galatians 3, 1 through 9, looking at the gospel, more more about the gospel today. I think the typical approach to this passage from preachers is kind of give you three theological points and some application. And I wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to go to two different time periods in Scripture, kind of take us on a bit of a journey, a bit of an extended time, to kind of look at the background of what Paul is talking about this morning. Because this is a passage where Paul has, you can just feel it, Paul is passionate here, and I want us to get a sense of his passion. Uh, Not just read about it, but actually start to to feel it a bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning. What I'd like to do is pray for us and before we get going, and then we'll read our passage, and then uh, a couple field trips await us. So let's pray and go from there. God, we thank you so much this morning that we can come before you. Thank you for this morning to gather as a church family and to worship you. That's just so good. So good to worship you in our giving and our time together and to encourage one another. And, and God, also to open your word now. And we are so thankful for that. Pastor Ben talked about in his prayer, you are, you are near. You are a God who is relational. You desire relationship with us. And even though you are so great and, and so other and, and we can't know everything about you, we can know who you are because you reveal yourself to us. And And so, God, as we come to your word today, that's what we would ask, is that you would reveal yourself more to us, that we would know you more, that we would then know who we are even better. And, God, areas of our lives that we need to to change in areas where, um, as we'll see, perhaps we're relying on ourselves rather than relying on you. Uh, Lord, help us to see those areas this morning. We need your help in that. But, God, we are thankful, and we come to you today um, uh, just... Uh, seeking you. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen. All right, so let's begin. First of all, let's read Galatians, our passage. We'll read Galatians 3, 1 through 9. I encourage you to follow along with me in your, your Bibles. But Paul says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Oh, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And there is our passage today. Now, Paul is making a transition here. The first two chapters, he's been defending the gospel that that he preached. He's been defending his own apostolic authority, saying, these things came from God. I didn't make this gospel up. It came from God. It has authority. Now he's going to start transitioning. In chapter 3, he's going to be talking about what is the gospel. And the very first thing we're, we're going to see today is that the gospel, from beginning to end, it is by faith. It's not a matter of works. You can't get to it by, by the law. You can't be made right by, with God through the law. You can't be made right with God through your own uh, human endeavors. It's all by faith. And so he's going to look at this, this section of, of um, the life of the Galatians. And what he's starting to do is he's looking back on their history, and he's also looking back on actually all of redemptive history, going back all the way to Abraham. And so that's where we want to go this morning. Now, you can see the exasperation here. As he starts out, he's saying, foolish Galatians. And he's not being abusive here. The word that he's using here kind of means you're not using your mind. Not that you don't have a mind, but you're just not using it. You're not, you're not being a wise person. You're, you're, you're not being discerning. You're being foolish. And, and he's so bewildered by this because he's like, it's, it's as though someone's bewitched you. Someone's put a spell on you because how you're acting makes just no sense right now. And why does he say that? Well, in verse 1, he's, he's looking at him and he's saying, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. Now, we don't really know what this means. The word he's using there for portrayed is kind of the same word he'd use for painting something or drawing a picture. Uh, whatever the case is happening, something they, they had seen something that was compelling evidence of Christ's crucifixion. They weren't merely just told, Jesus died for you. But they knew that he died for them. And, and in this, Paul is kind of looking back at what we saw last week, that if, if you could be saved through the law, then Christ died in vain. And now Paul's saying, but guys, you saw, you saw with your own eyes, Christ was crucified. So this can't be, you can't go back to the law. You, you, it's through Christ. So there's this exasperation going on. There's passion going on. And it's one thing for us to kind of enter the passage today and read about his passion, his exasperation, but I think it's another thing to kind of feel it, and that's what I want us to do. So we're going to do the field trip, like I said. On our first field trip, we're going to go to the book of Acts today and spend some time there. And what I want to do is I want to step through, how did we get to this point in history? How did the Galatians come to know who Jesus was? How did they come to faith? And we'll see that this whole issue of following the law and people saying you need to be circumcised is nothing new. So turn with me to the book of Acts. You can put a little bookmark in Galatians. We'll be back there eventually. But we're kind of going on an extended field trip today, and I want to spend some time here. So we're going to kind of be going through Acts, and and I want you to follow along with me. And we're going to go fairly quickly, just fair warning for that. But Acts, of course, written by Luke. He was a historian. He was a physician. He wrote about the early history of the church. How did the church come to be? 
And as Acts opens, the resurrected Jesus is spending time with his disciples. Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected, and he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them, getting them ready for what life would look like once Jesus wasn't on earth anymore. And so Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and he makes a promise to him. He's saying, hey, when I leave... I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. You're not going to be alone. You're, you're going to have my Holy Spirit. And, and so look at Acts chapter 1 with me, verse 8. Very famous verse. But you will receive power. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus, like I said, he's saying, I'm leaving the Holy Spirit's coming. And notice the Holy Spirit kind of has two aspects of his ministry. The very first thing, what's the Holy Spirit going to do? What's, what's he giving them power to do? That's well, to be his witnesses. So the Holy Spirit empowers people to be Jesus's witnesses. Basically, Jesus's physical representatives on the earth. They're going to be witnesses, and he's going to give them power. Uh, sometimes this is miraculous power. Oftentimes it's in the face of suffering. The Holy Spirit gives boldness for regular, ordinary people to, to face persecution with boldness. So this is the Holy Spirit's ministry. But the Holy Spirit plays another role as well. And this one it might seem odd to you, but he authenticates Jesus' people. That's the other fill-in on your sheet. And what do I mean by that, that he authenticates Jesus' people? Well, think about this. You're one of Jesus' followers. Holy, Jesus has said, I'm sending my Holy Spirit in order that you'll be my witnesses. So you're sitting around and, and the Holy Spirit comes. What does this tell you is true? Well, I'm one of Jesus' witnesses, right? Or let me put it another way. Let's say you're sitting around, Jesus has made these promises, and the Holy Spirit never comes. What might this say to you? Well, you might be like, huh, did anything Jesus say was true? Maybe I'm not one of Jesus' witnesses. But the Holy Spirit did come, and not only did it authenticate that, oh, we are Jesus' witnesses, but it authenticates everything that Jesus has been promising. Hey, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm preparing a place for you. You're one of my people. You're part of my kingdom. So the Holy Spirit comes, and sure enough, that's what happens. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as, fi as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what do they do? Right away they go out, they're preaching the gospel, and this is a miraculous event. Everybody in the city can hear the gospel being spoken in their, their heart language, their native language. And sure enough, they're being witnesses. And at this point... Uh, I, I would think if you were one of the early church, you would feel pretty good. Oh, this happened exactly like what Jesus promised. Um, his promise came true. I am his witness. And sure enough, they, they face persecution, and this brings them to places where they are put on public trial in front of officials, and the, the truth of the resurrection can be put on public testimony. And sure enough, they are Jesus' witnesses. Now, at this point in church history, okay, every Christian is also what? Jewish, Jewish yeah. Either by birth or, or by conversion, but every Christian is Jewish. And there's no question of, are we God's people? Yeah, we're God's people. We're Jewish and we receive the Holy Spirit. We're definitely God's people, all right? So that's where we are at this point. Now, Acts in chapter 5 and 6 or Acts 6, takes kind of a turn. In chapter 6, it begins following kind of the story of the Greek-speaking Jews. 
One of them, this guy named Stephen, is martyred. He's killed, and it causes the church to scatter from Jerusalem. Then another Greek-speaking Jew, Philip, ends up, because of that scattering, he goes to Samaria. Now, you might remember Pastor Jay last week talked about the Samaritans. Uh, ethnically, they were, they, they were uh, part Jewish, part Gentile. So the, the Jewish people didn't really like them. They were seen as half-breeds. Uh, religiously, they practiced some Jewish practices, but they had some mixture of pagan practices in there as well. But by and large, most Jewish people would avoid going to Samaria. Now, Philip ends up there, and he starts preaching about Jesus. What happens? Well, the Samaritans hear about Jesus, and lo and behold, they come to faith. They believe, and they think this is wonderful, and they're rejoicing about this. And the, the apostles who are still in Jerusalem get wind of this, and they think, huh, we need, to, we need to look into this. So they dispatch John and Peter, two of the apostles, to go and check out what's happening in Samaria. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 14. It said, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, at this point, are they saved? Well, I would say yes. They believed Jesus. They put their trust in him. They were even baptized. That, the Bible says you trust Jesus. That's the path to salvation. But the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet. Now look what happens in verse 17. Then they laid their hands, the apostles laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't think this is saying that the Holy Spirit's transmitted by physical contact. What's going on here? Well, remember, the apostles were the ones who were given authority to establish the church. And for the Samaritans to be considered part of God's people, this was, a, this was a big deal. This was pretty shocking. And so I think God waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them until two of the leaders of the church could come and verify this. And when they, they prayed over them, laid their hands, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Okay, what does this say about the Samaritans now? They have the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, they're God, Jesus' witnesses, right? Because that's what the Holy, this authenticates them now is they're God's people. They're part of God's people. And this is, this is pretty, pretty surprising at this point. On your study sheet, I say initially all Christians are Jewish, either by birth or conversion. Imagine the shock when the Samaritans now receive the Holy Spirit. This is pretty shocking. But, you know, it doesn't create a lot of controversy because at least the Samaritans do practice some Jewish traditions. In fact, they practice circumcision. So, okay, things are okay. Things are still kosher. So, um, what happens now? Well, Acts 10, moving to Acts 10 now, the Apostle Peter is sent by God to this guy's house. Name's Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's from the Italian cohort. He's a Gentile. Peter goes to his house, and here's Cornelius. A bunch of Gentiles are there as well. I kind of think this is funny. Acts 10.28, Peter kind of starts out. He says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You know, not a good way to start a sermon, by the way. Uh, I'm here to preach to you. And by the way, just so you know, it's really offensive for me to be here this morning. Not, not going down in the, you know, the, the manuals of how to witness to people, but God still uses Peter, so he starts preaching. And what happens? Look at Acts 10, verse 44. 
while Peter was still saying these things, so he's in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. All right. So in Acts 10, on your study sheet, Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a bunch of Gentiles, they receive the Holy Spirit. And this is so shocking. This is what I think is going on here. Why, why is there a difference in them? It's notice here. They haven't even been baptized yet. Nobody laid hands on them, yet they received the Holy Spirit like that. Why? Why with the Samaritans did they get baptized and they didn't get the Holy Spirit until they had hands laid on them? Why now here the Gentiles have kind of this difference in order? Well, here's what I think is going on. so shocking that God doesn't allow any human action to precede the Holy Spirit's filling. See, I think this would be the natural inclination of the, the Jewish Christians is that the Gentiles, for the Gentiles to be considered part of God's people, this is so unusual that we need to do something for these guys. We need to clean them up a little bit before they're ready for this. And so before any human intervention can take place, before any human action can take place, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. And I think God is making a big statement here. Again, what does receiving the Holy Spirit mean? They're witnesses, right? They're one of God's people. They're, they're part of the church. They're, they're part of the kingdom. Did they have to clean themselves up at all? No. They didn't have to do anything to receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what the Holy Spirit's doing now. This does create some controversy, finally. Because unlike the Samaritans, these were not circumcised people. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain to them in order. And he goes on to explain how God sent him there and what happened. And this kind of calms things down for a while. It kind of silences the criticism. But notice that the circumcision party is already kind of popping up here and, and, and trying to you know, push this agenda that you have to become Jewish to be a Christian. Now what happens? Well, the next step in Acts is Paul's ministry. Paul's now saved. He's sent on his first missionary journey. Interestingly, this journey takes him to the territory of Galatia. If you look at the cities he, go to, he goes to, such as Iconium, these are all in the province of, or the territory of Galatia. And so Paul goes to the Galatians. And the very first thing Paul d- does, um, this is in Acts chapter 14, is he goes to the synagogues. In every major city around the world, there were synagogues. So he goes to the synagogues first. And at first, he's well-received by the Jewish people at the synagogues. They like what he's saying until the Gentiles hear it. And Paul and his crew become popular with the Gentiles, and they want to hear about Jesus. And this causes the Jews to become jealous. And they start persecuting Paul, and they run him out. And Paul kind of says, you know, I had to come here first to give you an opportunity, but God has actually called me to the Gentiles. And so from now on on this missionary journey... I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he does. And guess what happens? Gentiles come in, in scores to faith, and, and they hear the good news, and they accept it. And, and this is amazing. And now, now there's a problem, because this is no longer just some isolated event at Cornelius' house. Now, all over in the Gentile world, 
Gentiles are coming to faith, and, and this causes controversy to boil over. Look at what happens. Acts 14, 27. Kind of Paul is done with his missionary trip. He's come back. He's kind of doing the mission trip presentation to the church. Acts 14, 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So this is where controversy boils over. Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here the circumcision party comes back again. Now, this brings us right into the Acts 15 that we've already looked at during the series. This is the Jerusalem council where they, they finally all the leaders of the church come together and say, we've got to figure this out. We're making a decision here. What has to happen with the Gentiles? And they decide, you know what? Gentiles are part of Christ's body. They're part of the church, and they don't have to do anything. They don't have to take on any Jewish customs to be that. And otherwise, they give the Gentiles freedom to remain Gentile while still being God's people. This is, this is massive. So all of this has happened. Okay, This is all past history. This has been dealt with. Now the Galatians are starting to get enticed back into this of, oh, you know what, maybe we should take on Jewish traditions. Okay, This wasn't the first time this issue has come up. Are you starting to feel Paul's exasperation here? Let me read Galatians chapter 3 again. O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? Okay, remember, Paul's looking at, you received the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit say? What does that say about you? It says you're God's people. It authenticates you as his witness. You're God's people. And you receive this Holy Spirit not by doing anything according to the law, not by works, but merely by hearing the message and receiving it by faith. He goes on, verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it, it, is in vain, or it was in vain? You know, in every major city there was a synagogue. The Jewish people had figured out ways to live in harmony with the Gentiles around them. You know, if it was possible for these folks to be saved through the law, Paul would have just said, you know what, just go and convert to Judaism. That will save you a lot, a lot of heartache. But no, it wasn't possible. And so they, their conversion came with suffering. It came with persecution, not just from other Gentiles, but from the, the Jewish people as well. And I think Paul is kind of thinking as a, a spiritual father saying, hey, if this was possible, don't you think I would have saved you from some suffering? Don't you think I would have let you do this other thing that would have caused you not to suffer? I wouldn't have, but this wasn't in vain. And he goes on, he says... In verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of law or by hearing with faith? The Galatians' own experience with the Spirit was clear testimony that they became God's people without needing to take on Jewish customs. And so this is where Paul's exasperation is coming. And he's looking back at their history, a long history. A lot of water's gone under the bridge, and he's saying, guys, you never had to do the law to be God's people. Why are you doing it now? What's going on? Now, now Paul's going to look at another piece of history. He's going to go all the way back to Abraham, and that's going to be our second field trip today. And we're going to go back and take a look at, at Abraham. So verse 5, uh, or finish up verse 5, and going into verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know that it was those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's looking back at the beginning of redemptive history, looking at Abraham. And I wanted to spend some time there today. So, so let's look at some of Genesis. Now think back to the beginning of the Bible. God creates the earth. Everything is good. There's no sin. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. And Adam and Eve kind of decide, you know what? I know a better way to do things than God. God gave them one rule not to break, and they broke that one rule. They were convinced, you know, maybe our way is better. And Genesis chapter 3 picks up where Adam and Eve, they're guilty. They haven't even said they're sorry yet. They haven't even repented yet. And God makes this promise to them. This is very surprising. Uh, Genesis 3.15 God's actually speaking to the serpent, and he's saying this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was the promise that from Eve, somebody would come who would deliver a mortal head wound to the serpent. This was God's first promise of a redeemer. And get this, when God made this promise to Adam and Eve, they were still in the mode of, well, God, I did this bad thing because that woman you gave me. And Eve was like, well, I did this bad thing because that snake you created. And, and they hadn't even said sorry yet. And yet God gives them this promise that I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to take care of this problem. Now, that's pretty amazing. And I want you to catch this, that this happened um, without, any, uh, without any human deservedness or action. Adam and Eve didn't deserve a promise of redemption. They hadn't done anything to to earn any favor from God, but God gives this promise before they deserve it. And this kind of sets the precedent for how God's redemptive plan is going to work. It doesn't come because we deserve it or we earn it or anything like that. Now, the next point in history where this promise of redemption is developed is with Abraham. Now, here they just know some redeemer is coming. Now, with Abraham, God's going to kind of reveal a little bit more of what's going to happen. But between Adam and Eve and Abraham, there's this period of wickedness. I say on your study sheet, God allows a period of wickedness that demonstrates the result of self-reliance and human effort. This is all leading up to the flood. Why does God let things go so bad leading up to the flood? I think he removes kind of the restraints to say, this is what happens when you are allowed to completely rely on yourself. And what's the result of it? Well, Genesis 6-5 sums it up. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Does that sound pretty specific to you? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That was the result of self-reliance and human effort. I know sometimes we look at our culture's moral trajectory and we feel a little pessimistic about it, but we haven't seen nothing yet, okay? Things were off the rails here, and so God takes the one righteous man by the standards of his day, Noah, saves him and his family from the flood, and then kind of starts over again. And Genesis 10 picks up with uh, the earth's populated again, the nations come from them, and then Genesis chapter 11 and 12 kind of gives us this tale of what I'd call two redemptive plans. Man's redemptive plan and God's redemptive plan. 
You see, what happens here is in, in Genesis, we begin to see this thing where we just have this tendency to go towards self-reliance and, and human effort. This is, by the way, what Paul is referring to when he talks about the flesh. It's a fill-in on your study sheet, by the way. Uh, the flesh. And we're going to see this, our tendency towards self-reliance. Because what happens right after the flood? Well, mankind gets together and they're kind of like, hey, let's try this again. Self-reliance didn't work out so well the last time, but let's see if we can do another go at it. And so they start creating the city, Babel or Babylon. And Genesis 11, 3 through 4 says, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they're kind of saying, hey, you know what, let's build this tower. By the way, a tower that stops in the heavens wasn't saying like a hundred-story tall tower. This was a spiritual function. This was a, they were building something to kind of make themselves equal with God in their minds. And they're building this city, and in their minds, they're going to save themselves. And you know what? God has already shown us what happens when we're left to self-reliance. So he says, I'm not going to let that happen again. He comes down, and in kindness, I would say, he confuses the language and scatters them. He doesn't let man stay with their redemption plan. Instead, he comes to Abraham, or at this point, his name's Abram in Genesis 12, and God has his own plan. He comes to Abram and says, Genesis 12, 2 through 3, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you notice a contrast here between those two sections? It's kind of a bit of irony here. In Babylon, they said, hey, let's make a great name for ourselves, and God said, nope, not going to happen. Then he goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make your name great. Wait, why is it not good for them to have a great name, but for Abraham it's good? Well... On their hand, Babylon, that's with self-reliance, we're going to make our own name great, and it's going to be for our glory. In Abraham's case, it's reliance on God. He's going to make his name great, and it's actually for God's glory. See, why did God choose Abraham? Well, it wasn't singling him out for some exclusive privilege at the expense of others. God chose Abraham in order to bless all the families of the earth. Look at verse 3 again of chapter 12. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was blessed in order that all the nations would be blessed. And Paul looks at this and says, this is the first time that the gospel is preached. That's the first time it's preached. That's pretty amazing. Now, now who's Abraham? Did he deserve this? No. He's some guy from the city of Ur. His family are, are pagan idol worshipers. He was probably an idol worshiper as well. And God chooses him and gives him this promise, and God's going to do this work. It's God's work. Now, if you know about Abraham, you know he is the grandfather of Jacob, who was named Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the nation of Israel comes from. It's through them that the Messiah would come, and sure enough, bless the entire earth. But there was a bit of a problem, because all these descendants weren't immediately apparent to Abraham. Him and his wife were really old when they received this promise, They didn't have any kids, and at some point, after several years passed, Abraham starts thinking, man, this is kind of a problem. God, is my servant going to become my heir, or am I actually going to have a kid? Look at Genesis 15, verse 5. It says, God, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham's thinking, man, I don't know how this is going to work. And God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than them. And Abraham believed. And this is where Abraham was considered righteous. This is what Paul is pointing at. How, did, how was it that Abraham was considered righteous? Well, he heard something from God, a promise from God. He believed that promise, and it was counted as righteousness. It's by faith. You see, Abraham didn't earn a righteous status. It was counted to him through his faith. Now, what Paul's pointing out here with Abraham is this came before circumcision. Circumcision happened in Genesis 17. This is Genesis 15. So wait, if Abraham was considered righteous because of faith before circumcision, maybe the Gentiles can be considered righteous through faith without circumcision. Oh, and by the way, the law doesn't exist yet. That's not going to come for another 500 years when Abraham's descendants are taken out of Israel and they're given, or out of Egypt and they're given the law uh, at Mount Sinai. So here's the point that Paul's making. Abraham is considered righteous before God. Not because he earned it, not because he deserved it. After all, if you know anything about Abraham, he makes some pretty big mistakes, doesn't he? In fact, if you look at the Old Testament and all the heroes of the Old Testament, they're all incredibly flawed people. Incredibly flawed people. Why does God use flawed people? Well, there's quite a lack of flawless people in the world, isn't there? And by the way, God gets the glory. He works through flawed people by saying, hey, it's me doing this, not you. You're not earning it. In fact, I put on your study sheets Deuteronomy 7 and 9. I love those. We're not going to them this morning, but I kind of love them. It's before the Israelites go into the promised land, and God's saying, oh, by the way, in case you thought I picked you because you were so great or so well-behaved, not the case. I actually picked you because you were so kind of stiff-necked and ornery and small, and I, I love it. But it's God saying, I pick people not because they deserve it, but because it's me working. I get the glory for it. Now, here's the thing. Salvation has always been about faith in God's promise. The people of the Old Testament, they didn't earn salvation. They didn't earn salvation through the law. They, they, earned, they, they, they received salvation by looking towards Christ. They looked forward to Christ. And I put Christ there because I said the cross, but they didn't know about the cross. They just knew that the Christ, somebody was coming, a Redeemer was coming, the Messiah, and they looked forward to that promise. They had faith in it. And this is how salvation has always worked. So going back to Galatians then, when Paul's looking at them and saying, you know, Abraham was considered righteous, the gospel was preached to him about the nations, God foresaw that the Gentiles would be saved by faith, not by works. Do you, do you see what he's getting at here? Now, we don't know what the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party were saying, but sometimes you know, you can start making assumptions about their argument, and maybe they were making some arguments about, you know, if you really want to follow Abraham, you should be circumcised because Abraham was circumcised. And Paul's saying here, no, actually, you are children of Abraham because of faith, not because of doing any works. Now, I want us to talk about this today in terms of how do we respond to this, because look at Galatians 3.3 3 again. Paul says, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And now I want us to remember, what does flesh mean? Uh, flesh means self-reliance. It means doing things my own way, doing things through my effort. 
why did the Galatians go from starting in the spirit to now relying on the flesh? Were they just particularly stupid people? No. In fact, they were just like you and me. You see, I think our tendency as humans is towards self-reliance. And, and in life, we, we are given the Spirit, and we're told to rely on the Spirit, but one of the things we've got to be cautious about is so often our tendency is to start kind of walking away from that and start relying on me. Now, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not just talking about grotesque sin. Sometimes when we read about flesh in the Bible, we think, oh, this is grotesque sin, right? Well, the flesh in an irreverent form it does include grotesque sin. But please get this, that the flesh can also come in a religious form. Relying on the flesh, living in the flesh can look really good. It can look really spiritual. It can look really holy. And you see, this is the, the, the urge that the Galatians were feeling is, man, maybe we should just be a little bit more spiritual. Maybe we should just be a little more holy. Maybe following those Jewish traditions would, would make us a little bit more acceptable to God. And you see, the thing I want us to see today is that we have that same urge we have that same tendency to go that same direction. We have to be so careful. Part of what Galatians is for us as a church is a call for us to not live in the flesh, but to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel and constantly be relying on the Spirit, not on ourselves. And here's the thing. You know, this is what I want us to see. I want to keep it simple today, but I want us to see that it's so easy for us because of the flesh to take good things that God has given us and misuse them and end up undermining the gospel. What do I mean by those things? What are good things that we might misuse? Well, a number of things I list here. Cultural practices. By cultural practices is any time I look at a certain culture or a certain cultural practice and think, if I adopt this, it will make me a better Christian. You know what? I see this, frankly, a lot in the Messianic community. A lot of non-Jewish people are joining Messianic churches thinking that by adopting uh, Jewish culture and Jewish terminology and Jewish customs and Jewish holidays is going to make them somehow a more authentic or a better Christian. And now here's the thing. I think Jewish culture is beautiful. And I think it's wonderful to learn about, and it, it does. It, there's value to knowing about the background of Jewish culture and traditions and all those things. But if I take something that's beautiful and I start relying on it to make me feel cleaner before God, then I'm undermining the gospel. I am. Now, we do this, too, with spiritual disciplines. I love spiritual disciplines. I think they're very helpful. I'm glad that we recently had a class on them here. But here's the thing. When I take a spiritual discipline and I start using it as a way to make me feel more accepted before God, then I'm undermining the gospel. See, if I take a, a new prayer methodology and I say, boy, when I do this, I just feel so much cleaner and so much right before God, I'm undermining the gospel. Or if I look at somebody else and I say, well, I, I do this spiritual discipline, but they, that, that person over there, they like never fast. They're kind of a lower Christian than me. I'm undermining the gospel. Spiritual disciplines are wonderful things, but they don't make us more acceptable to God. This happens with emotional highs too. Things like Christian conferences are wonderful. Christian retreats are wonderful. Mission trips are wonderful. But all these things can create an emotional high where I come away from them and I feel, oh, I, I'm so much closer to God. And, and we can start relying on that emotional high to say, oh, I'm, I'm in a better place with God now. 
And in a way, we can become addicted to that. And every time we don't feel that emotional high, we can feel distance from God. And when we do that, when we use those types of things and those emotional highs in that way, we're undermining the gospel. When we use modern day indulgences, now this is a weird one. I worded this in a weird way on, on purpose. What do I mean by indulgences? Well, in Catholic history, an indulgence was something that the church would sell you to kind of kind of make you a little bit better with God. You'd buy a piece of paper that says, you know, you need, you'll spend less time in purgatory or you won't pay as big of a price for sin. It's basically relying on the church's authority to make you right with God. And you know, we kind of sometimes do the same thing. Anytime we look to the church and maybe someone in authority and we rely on them to make us feel more clean. You know, I think having like a pastor pray for you is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. By the way, after service, I'm always happy to pray with people. So what I'm about to say, don't take that as a way of saying, I'm not going up there today. (laughs) But here's the thing. If you rely on having a pastor pray over you and after that happens, you're like, oh, I feel so much cleaner. I feel better. I'm more acceptable to God then you're undermining the gospel. Is having a pastor pray for you a bad thing? Absolutely not. It's a wonderful thing. Does it make you more acceptable to God? No, it doesn't. Okay, the blank on your study sheet, I know you're wondering what the blanks are. Even baptism and communion can be used to undermine the gospel. You see, I hear people take baptism and say, you know, I'm getting baptized because, you know, once I do, I'm just going to, you know, be a little bit better off. I'm going to be a better Christian. You know what? Baptism doesn't do that. The process of dunking you in the water and bringing you back up doesn't make you more acceptable to God. It doesn't clean you up at all. All it is is it's a public testimony that you're identifying with Christ. Is it a good thing to do? Yeah, we're even commanded to do it. It's a wonderful thing to do, but it, it can be misused to undermine the gospel when we start thinking it makes us more acceptable to God. We can do this with communion. Communion is, is merely a way for us ceremonially to remember the body and blood of Christ shed for us. We should do it. We should remember that. We should remember the hope we have. But you know what? If you kind of the first Sunday of the month kind of see communion as a way for you to kind of get extra clean for the things that you've done in the past, that's not what communion does. And it undermines the gospel when we think. And here's what I mean by all this. Because the gospel is this way. It's not like... Let me use an analogy. Let's say you start life with a credit card. And every time you sin, you you rack up a little bit of debt on that credit card. And sometimes we treat the gospel like this. I put my faith in Jesus and, and the debt is wiped away, cleared off. But then we start living life like, oh, I sinned, so I get a little more debt, so now I need to work to clear that debt off, and I get a little bit more. And that's, that's the wrong way to look at the gospel. Because what the gospel says is actually, okay, you get that credit card, and when you come to Christ, what happens? You don't just get the debt cleared. The card gets shredded. And now you're put as a beneficiary under Jesus' account. You don't have any ability to rack up any more debt. See, the gospel says you are fully accepted to God. The gospel says you are fully cleaned by God. So anything you do that makes you feel like I'm a little bit more accepted to God, I'm a little cleaner because I did this, is undermining the gospel because here's the thing. You can't be any more accepted than you already are if you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't be any cleaner than you already are if you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And you see, that is where we need to be careful because what happens is the flesh beckons to us and entices us and tells us, oh, maybe if I just do that, I'll be a little more acceptable. 
And so today, as, as we wrap up here, this is just what, what I want for us as we come to Galatians and see this. The Galatians weren't doing this, even after all that history, because they were especially foolish. They were doing this because this is the natural tendency of our hearts. And we've got to be aware of this. So maybe you today are, are, are thinking, you know what, I have been doing this. Maybe I have been relying on whatever, just name it, to make me a little bit more acceptable to God. I want you to know today, if you're putting your trust in Jesus, you are already accepted. You are already a beloved child of God. Now, you might be sitting here today and realizing, I've never put my trust fully in Jesus. I've always been relying on something. And if that's the case, today is the day you need to stop trusting in any of your efforts and put your trust fully in Jesus. And you know what? I'd love to talk with you about that and pray with you about that. But with all that said, I'm going to invite us to stand today. And I want to pray for us as we head out from here. And, and I think these are good things for us to, to ask God about. So let's pray. God, we are thankful. We are thankful that not only do we have your word to tell us about who you are, but it tells us who we are. And God, I know as I look at my own self, I know my own heart's tendency to trust in me to start wondering if maybe there's something more I can do. And God, we need a reminder of what the gospel is, a clear reminder that we, we don't bring anything to it. We don't earn anything. We don't clean ourselves up any. So God, as we speak about these things today, I know these are hard things even to believe, and we need your help understanding them and accepting them. But God, as a church family, I pray that we would be looking to you, to Jesus, to, to, to find our acceptance, not relying on ourselves. Clarity on the gospel, clarity. So God, I'd pray that today for this congregation, for each person here, that there would be clarity and that if there is anybody relying on themselves this morning, that you would cause them to see that and to repent of it and to turn back to you. God, if there are those here who maybe are realizing, man, I've, I've never not trusted myself. I've, only, I've always been trying to earn a little bit of it. Lord, I pray today would be a day that Faith would be put completely in Jesus. Trust completely in Jesus, not in us. God, wherever each person here goes today, I pray that you would be with them this week as they interact with others. Uh, be with them. I lift them up to you, Lord, and you know the needs here. And so, Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus and in your spirit. Amen.